If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 8, and we'll soon be reading in verse 18. If you don't have a Bible with you or you only have your phone, I would offer you a Bible in the pew, in the pocket in front of you, and you can find Matthew 8 on page 763 of that Bible. There's a phenomenon in the world called pareidolia. Uh, Pareidolia is, in a general sense, seeing patterns in things that aren't necessarily there. It's most commonly associated with seeing faces in things that aren't really faces. The most common example of this is how we kind of see faces in cars. The two headlights and the grill, it looks like two eyes and a mouth. And we do this all the time with a number of different things. You sometimes think you see a face because your, your brain is sort of wired in such a way to see faces in things. This is just our basic human ability to see patterns. We just want to see patterns. We look to see patterns all over the place. And I feel like often as I go throughout my week in sermon prep and and working through materials and other things that I'm doing, I find that I find patterns in things. And I often talk about how in either the scripture readings that we're doing in, in the the responsive readings in even the songs that we're singing, which oftentimes are picked months in advance. We don't do these every single week and regenerate them. Sometimes I do them a year in advance for some of the scripture readings. Uh, what ends up happening is I, I pick those things and they're there. And then when I come to preaching through the, the topic that is presented before us in the word of God that week, I, I say, hey, that scripture is perfect for what I'm talking about this morning. And some people would look at that and say, well, that's just, that's just a coincidence. It's bound to happen. You know, you're, you're preaching, you know, 47, 48 sermons a, a, a year. You're going to eventually do things like that. Those things are going to happen. I, I would prefer to see it as a pattern of God's providence and that he has given to us these things that, that I am able to see and then bring forward to you. And one of those things was this week as we're doing apologetics in Sunday school, uh, I, I had the chance this week to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and thereby talk about the importance of miracles in Scripture. And there have been some in church history, although I wouldn't consider them a part of the church, uh, some in church history who argued that miracles are just not something that we need to bother ourselves with. We know that miracles can't happen, and there might be a variety of reasons for people in the past to have presented certain things as miracles, but that's not really the important thing. The important thing is what Jesus taught. The important thing is how Jesus taught us to arrange our lives, how Jesus taught us to arrange society. And and that's the thing that we really need to cling on to. If we can understand those things, and we've got what we need to from Christianity. We need miracles, though. The church has long understood that these things have happened, and more than that, they've understood that these things are important to happen. I mean, just take Matthew. Matthew comes off of the Sermon on the Mount, but he doesn't just give us more teaching of Jesus. He thinks that it's vitally important to give us two full chapters of almost nothing but Jesus doing miracles. He doesn't just report miracles. He thinks that the actual stories around the miracles are important for us. Last week, I said that the miracles of Jesus do three things. One, they prove his deity, something we'll be talking about more today. Two, they show his compassion. These aren't magic tricks that are meant to impress people, but oftentimes, more times than not, these are healings that he is doing because he cares about people who are suffering, are injured, have, have lameness or paralysis that he wishes to undo. It just shows us that he cares about people and he loves them. 
And third, that these are little pictures of our salvation. That they show us, in the end, what Jesus is going to do fully for all of us and healing us completely from everything that ails us. Where there will be no more tears, there will be no more death, there will be no more devastation. Eventually, Jesus will come to heal the brokenness of the world completely. In doing that, though, I think that I've sort of missed the overarching point of the miracles, which comes to us really kind of full width today. And that is that the miracles are meant to make us sort of love Jesus. The whole reason to display him as powerful as God and and to display his compassion and to show us the kind of salvation that he offers is to draw us close to Jesus. It's to to make us disciples, that we might see in Jesus something that we want to follow, we want to pattern ourselves after. And this is probably why Matthew 8 and 9 are not just a series of miracle stories, but interspersed in those miracle stories are little statements, little, little sort of teachings about discipleship that Matthew plants there. The miracles themselves are there to help us want to be close to Jesus, to follow him, to throw our lot in with him. It's because we want the power of God. We want the compassion that the miracles demonstrate. We want the salvation that they promise. These three stories that we're going to be dealing with at the end of Matthew chapter 8 really are are one sort of concise group. You can see this in the beginning when Jesus says that he's going to go over to the other side of the sea. He eventually gets in the boat, goes over to the other side, speaks a word, and then comes back again to the side that they were just on. All three of these things are kind of compacted into one story. But each of these stories with two miracles in them should indeed help us grow in our desire and see the goodness and the wonder of who Jesus is. Let us read the word of our God, beginning in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. The word of God reads, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples came to him and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped with waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. 
So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of our God. The first story that we come to teaches us that Jesus is a wise counselor. Jesus is a wise counselor. Jesus sees the crowd and, and for some reason, we're not told exactly why, he says, hey, this crowd's not where I want to be. We're going to get in a boat. We're going to go to the other side. And two men come up to him, apparently gospels, or excuse me, apparently disciples. We're not exactly sure if the first one's a disciple. The second one says it is, he is a disciple. It says the second one is another disciple. We don't know if the another is referring to the group of the disciples or to the first man. But nevertheless, Jesus gives each of these men advice. He tells them something after they speak to him. And the advice is opposite kind of what we think that would happen. The one guy who is filled with zeal, Jesus pushes away, and the other guy who seems to have a real excuse and need, Jesus beckons forward. Let us first consider the scribe. It's worth noting that this scribe calls Jesus teacher, which is not an unwise term to use for Jesus, not an unheard of term, but it is a term that no one here has used yet. They've used Lord, they've used his name, but they, they haven't actually called him teacher. The very fact that a scribe calls Jesus this and not Lord is, I think, important. We're reminded that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew kind of tells us one of the main purposes of scribes is to teach. And what sets Jesus' teaching apart is that his teaching doesn't sound like the rest of the scribes. So for a scribe to come up to Jesus and to call him teacher, I think says something about the way in which he views Jesus. Now, I don't know for certain. I don't know that that's actually what was going through his mind. Certainly, Jesus is a teacher, and there's no reason not to call him that. But it, it is a good reminder to us for us to be careful because there is a vast difference between seeing in Jesus what you want to be and seeing Jesus the way you want him to be seen. Those two things are not the same. One says that you see who Jesus is and you desire to be like him. The other one is forming Jesus in your mold, making him into the kind of savior and person that you want him to be. I wonder if that is not part of this man's zeal. He sees Jesus primarily as a teacher Somebody who is like him, only maybe better. But he is zealous, make no doubt about that. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. This is quite the promise. Especially when the person has absolutely no idea what the future holds, or where he is going. That's the very thing that Jesus picks up on. Perhaps this man was used to going to other teachers and he could foresee the quality of teaching that Jesus provides and say, hey, when I've heard great teaching, those men often end up in important positions in Israel. You won't be a traveling nomad forever. Eventually, you're going to get a place to teach and, and you're going to have some importance and I, I want to be there with you. He knew what the lives of men who 
were famous and who were great in teaching looked like, and maybe he saw a future with Jesus in that. But no matter what his issue was, Jesus knows better. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jesus saw something behind the very commitment that this man has, the very words that he speaks. There's something else there because Jesus pushes him away. He acts accordingly to push him away. And he says, listen, you say you'll go with me anywhere. But foxes have dens and birds have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. You say you'll go any place, but I don't have a place. You say you will go everywhere, but would you go nowhere and still be with me? The emphasis here is on that, that word where. I will go wherever. And he says, there is no place for me. I have nowhere to be. Jesus takes this man who is quite clearly enamored with him, who has zeal for him, and he covers him with a big wet blanket. He says, hey, you need, to, you need to temper your zeal. You need to calm down and consider what is going on here. We're reminded that Jesus is not fooling people. He's, he's not promising things that they want to hear. He's not flattered by them, and he won't flatter them. He's not trying to get people to buy in only to, to show them the difficulty of what's going to happen later. He is clear on the price. As this is used elsewhere, Jesus wants you to consider the cost before you go to follow him. The road is, as Jesus has said, difficult. And following Jesus may cost the worldly pleasures that you so love to flee from you and any of the comforts that you have known to depart. Consider that well. The next gentleman has sort of the opposite problem. Not filled with zeal, but filled with those problems of the world. His father has apparently just died. He makes a, a fairly normal request, we might say an incredibly reasonable request. I want to follow you, Lord, but I, I would like to go bury my father first. And Jesus makes what I think, if, if the first statement that Jesus has to the, the scribe seems a bit on the harsh side, a bit maybe overdone, this one seems harsh. He says, now you, you follow me. He's trying to drive the first one away. He beckons the second one, and you follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is not the only time that Jesus will say something that appears to be harsh in this passage. The dead refers to those people who are not with them. In essence, what Jesus is saying is following me is life. If you would like to go with the land of the living, you will follow me. If you want to stay behind, you stay behind, but you realize that that is where the dead are. Leave the dead to bury the dead. Come with me. It's not that Jesus takes the caring of parents lightly. He's not about to break the fifth commandment. But there is a reason why that is the fifth commandment and not the first commandment. The first commandment is to have no other gods before him. And Jesus is very clear. The kingdom of God must come first. The very presence of Jesus with us must come before anything else. Everything else is subsidiary to it, including your family. Nothing comes before this. He's making that in a very poignant way in this man's life. You cannot honor your parents by making them the most important thing in your life. That's nothing but idolatry. 
Children are prone to do this perhaps with their parents. Certainly parents are prone to do this with their children, where their children's needs and their children's wants and their children's desires come before anything else in their lives. And certainly before their dedication to honoring and praising and glorifying God. Those things must be worked around a different schedule. And Jesus says, that can't ever happen. Friends, if you're not willing to give up creature comforts, if you're not willing to make Jesus the most important thing in your life, you're not fully ready to be a disciple. Jesus is either asking you to calm down your zealotry and think about what it's costing you, or he's beckoning you forward. He gives to each what they need so that they might be the best disciples that they can be. And realize that Jesus does this for you all the time. Some people in here have lived extraordinarily hard lives, whether it's because of the financial situation they were in, the sin that they got themselves into, the, the background of their lives that they have been placed into. Maybe it's, it's their, their careers didn't work out the way they did. They're, they suffer from depression. It could be any of a number of things. You've lived a very hard life. But realize that that hard life was given to you by God for the same reason that he gave Solomon all of the beauty of the world. Solomon is able to taste and to experience everything that the world has to offer. He holds nothing back from himself. So that in the end, when he looks up at the sky, he says, everything that is below the sun, everything that is, is here, if we exclude God from it, all of it, it's worthless, it's a vapor, and it's vain. God sometimes shows people that through the harshness of their lives. Sometimes he shows people that by allowing them to experience everything. But nevertheless, Jesus is a great counselor and he gives you exactly what you need so that you might be with him now. Either to get you to count the cost of being in the world or to beckon you close to him. To others, Jesus gives good things. Not so that they would see the worthlessness of them, but that they might see the goodness of one who provides those things so that you might draw close to him through that blessing. He gives to each what they need, not out of favoritism, not because he loves some people more than he loves others, but so that you particularly, he might counsel to draw close to him. Jesus is wise in his providence and his kindness. Do not despise this. But see the beauty of what Jesus is doing in your life and draw close to him, for he is a wise counselor. Secondly, Jesus is a strong protector. The disciples finally make it to the boat. They push out. But before they can get too terribly far, a violent storm erupts on the sea. This is an interesting translation. The word that's actually used here is the same word we get the word seismograph from. It, it means earthquake, but we're on the water, so it doesn't make a lot of sense. But the idea is the water is basically violently shaking below them, just like it would if it were an earthquake. The storm is incredibly violent. And remember, again, anytime we have these violent storms and we're dealing with the disciples, it means that we ought to remember that many of these disciples, and the ones that certainly we've been introduced to, were fishermen. They, they were prone to understanding what storms on the sea were like, but even this is too much for them. A storm is violent. The boat's suddenly in danger of capsizing or being swallowed up, and yet we get this hilarious note, honestly, funny, that Jesus is sleeping in the boat. One, to prove the very thing that he just said. 
Like, I've got no place to lay down. The best place that I have to sleep is a boat in the middle of the storm. I've seen videos of, like, kids falling asleep when they're eating. I have no idea how that happens. Like, I, I, just, I just don't. The kids can push themselves to limits where they just get overly tired and then nothing will possibly keep them awake. I think that that is actually the picture that you ought to have here. Jesus is exhausted. Healing, and teaching, all the compassion, all the good that he has shown to people has wiped him out so that even in a boat, in the middle of a storm, he's like, I've, I've got to sleep. So he sleeps. But like all good sleep, it must come to an end. The disciples wake him up and say very, very, just very to the point, God, our Lord, we're dying. Wake up. Get up. Help us. I doubt that they just wanted him to be present, that he might help get water out of the boat by using his hands. They certainly thought that he could do something for them. They're not sure what, what they're going to get, but it obviously turns out better than they could have thought. Now Jesus wakes up and then, for the second time, says something that we find a little harsh. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Well, the first question, why are you afraid? I mean, that's got a pretty straightforward answer, right? It's the waves and the sea and all the death that we're going to experience here pretty soon. If, if, if anyone's afraid of anything, this is the thing to be afraid of. We're about to die. And the fishermen are standing there saying, yeah, 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 we're not, we're not extrapolating here. Like, this is, this is dangerous. We're in a bad place here. But Jesus says, no, 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 your fear is misplaced. You shouldn't be afraid. Why are you afraid? That fear is why they have just little faith. You shouldn't hear Jesus as being more harsh than he truly is. It's little faith. It's not no faith. They do indeed have little faith, but it's something. They woke Jesus up thinking that he could do something. Their problem wasn't waking him up. Their problem was they thought they had to. It's not that Jesus is... An angry dad, when he's woken up after a Sunday afternoon nap, <clears throat> is a little, bit, a little bit short with his children. That's not, that's not what's going on here. He, he understands well. There's another reason why he's sleeping there, because he trusts in the very protection of God. He knows what's going to end his life. He knows what's going to bring it to a close. It is the Jews in Jerusalem. It is, it is the... the betrayal of his own people. He knows what it is. This storm is not how his story is going to end. And so because it's not how his story is going to end, they were always going to be protected so long as they were with Jesus, they would always be okay. Not even being conscious. The man Jesus Christ sleeping there was all the protection that they needed to call out to him. It's a sign of faith. And Jesus, by the way, cares about that bit of faith. He doesn't just let it sit there. He doesn't say, well, it's not enough faith. I'm not going to do it for you. I hope you like swimming, Pete. He doesn't say that. He says, stop. Notice the word rebuke is used, but it's not used of the disciples. He uses the faith of the disciples. He acknowledges their faith, even if it's little, and rebukes the storm that threatened them. He cares about his people. In the end, it is not about the size of your faith. It is not about how much you believe, 
but it's about who you believe. Their little faith is enough for Jesus to act. Jesus knows exactly where his life is going, and so Jesus knows exactly where your life is going. And so long as you know Jesus, you know everything that's going to happen in its future as of importance. You don't know the details, but there is no trial that will befall you. There is no storm that will arise in your life. There is nothing that he's going to put before you that Jesus hasn't already answered because you are with Jesus. Jesus has died, but he has risen. You will face difficulties. You will one day die, lest the Lord return beforehand. But so long as you are with Jesus, it doesn't matter. The fate of Jesus is your fate. If you are present with him, you are alive with him. He will raise you from the grave. What have you to fear? You don't need his calming of the storm. You simply need him. So, Jesus stands up, calmly rebukes the sea, and everything comes to a stop. And, and frankly, the men marveled. That 27 is an amazing verse. These friends of ours have seen a number of miracles. They've seen paralyzed men get up and walk. They've seen crippled hands become whole. They've seen leprosy fall off of people. They've seen the blind receive their sight. They've seen a number of amazing things. And at no point in time does Matthew record that they are amazed by it. But this particular miracle makes them say, uh, pardon? Like th this is on a whole other level for them. What sort of man can do this? It's funny, the next time Jesus will do something like this, chapter 14, when he will walk on the water to them, no longer are they asking, what sort of man does this? They will say, you are the son of God. They'll have their answer, which is an answer that we're getting ahead of ourselves, that the demoniacs are going to give to them in just a second. But nevertheless, this is an act of God. This is what God does repeatedly in the Psalms. God is presented as the one who calms the waves, who, who takes the chaos of water and stills it and organizes it. Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is over the water, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Psalm 65, the Lord stills the roaring of the sea, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Best is Psalm 107, which reads like it was actually pulled from Matthew and taken back a few centuries and plopped back down. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Jesus is a strong protector because Jesus is God. And he's a strong protector because those who are found in him belong to him, and his fate is yours. It is pastorally cliche to say that Jesus helps you with the storms of your life, but just because it's a cliche doesn't mean that it's not true. It is true. He will help you. But we shouldn't think of that as only future. It's not that he will help you, he has helped you. Because there might be a day when that storm overtakes you, but friend, even there, he is helpful for you. He is good. He has gone the path that you will go down. 
He slept serene in the knowledge that his fate was sealed by God. His fate to die in Jerusalem and to be raised again is the fate of his disciples as well. They will die with him in a sense, but they will certainly be raised with him in a completely other sense. And even so it is for you now. The storm might not abate. The plane might go down. The disease might take you. But you will rise just as certainly as Jesus Christ has because Jesus will protect you. Great faith, little faith, it is not the subject of the faith that matters, but the object. Trust in Christ. Let his protection fall upon you and know that you can face any storm safe in the outcome. Whether death or life, Jesus is with you and he is powerful to save. Third, Jesus is a kind warrior. He's a kind warrior. They finally reach the shore and they see what they came here for. Through all that trouble, all that difficulty, they come to shore, they walk a little bit, and immediately they're met by two men who are demon-possessed. We haven't met much demon possession so far in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me say a couple of words about demon possession, and that is that it happens. We're assured that by the word of God that it happens, and let me assure you, for those of you who might dabble in a bit of psychology every now and then, we don't know what's actually going on between your ears. We're kind of befuddled by everything that happens in someone's psyche. We don't know why people act the way they do or the things that they get into. So, we're we're fine with saying that certainly some of those psychological things can be dealt with because they're physical. It's clear that they believe that demon possession had physical problems associated with it. These men were fierce and strong. We we hear of other demoniacs being so strong that they can do almost superhuman things. Certainly it has an impact on how people physically handle themselves. Nevertheless, The Bible holds out that it's not just a physical thing. The problem is not always the fact that your brain doesn't have the right chemicals. Sometimes the problem is, quite clearly, your brain has a demon. Maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Your mind has a demon. Don't hold me to the technical language. I'm doing this off the cuff. So, Jesus shows up, and these guys come out, and they're fierce, and they won't let anybody pass. And Jesus doesn't say a word. He just walks up to them. And immediately... They cry out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? That language, Son of God, has been used before in the gospel, but always by, always by supernatural things. It is the implication of the, the voice from heaven. This is, you are my Son. It is the very language that the devil uses to tempt Jesus, if you are the Son of God. It will be used later As we said, when people will finally start to see in Jesus something that is, lest lest we think that he's, he's not human, that he is human, but more than human. He's not just human. Chapter 14, they will call him the Son of God. Instead of asking what kind of man is this, this is the great confession that Peter makes in chapter 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here, it's used because these demons know who stands before them. There's something about Jesus that they don't need him to speak. They don't need him to show any power. They know who stands before them. As a reminder, 
If you believe that God is one, that's great. The demons believe that and shudder. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that's fantastic. You need to do more than just believe in titles for Jesus because these demons have a title for him and they stand before him and shudder. They immediately put another question to us. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time implies these demons know their fate. They know what's going to happen at the end of time. They know that there will come a moment when, when God will judge them for what they've done, when God will bring his justice upon them. And they say, this time isn't now. Why are you here now? Even more important is this idea of torment. Have you come to torment us? It's an incredibly rare word used three times in the book of Matthew, but we've actually already come upon it. Last week, when we talked about the, the centurion, when he talks about either his servant or his son, however you want to translate it, he says in verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. That suffering terribly is the word tormented. He's at home being tormented. I don't think Matthew uses this on accident. What disease does to us, it threatens us with pain and with suffering. It threatens us with limitations and even death and an ending of our life. That is precisely the threat that Jesus poses to his enemies. He has come to torment them. In Psalm 18, we read that with the purified you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. And these fierce men stand before this carpenter who says nothing, who does nothing, and they ask him if he's here to torment them. And then they change tack and they ask him for a favor. They say, hey, if you're going to cast us out, notice Jesus hasn't cast them out. So mighty is he that they're just going to preemptively exercise themselves. They say, hey, we're, we want to go out, but can we go into the pigs down there? Demons love the unclean. That's why they hang out in tombs. Tombs are unclean. Dead bodies are in there. Pigs are unclean. They want to go with the pigs. These men who are so fierce that no one can pass know that before this man, they can't do anything unless they get permission from him. They cannot leave the men that they're in. They cannot go into the pigs that they want to go to unless Jesus gives them a word. So Jesus speaks that word. The entire incident on this far shore includes one word from Jesus. Go. It's hard not to be reminded of a mighty fortress as our God. Luther, speaking of the devil so fluently in that song, says, one little word will fell him. Just one little word. They voluntarily leave before Jesus, go into the pigs, run the pigs down into the water, die. It's strange that Jesus decided to go all the way across the sea just for that. The herdsmen 
take this incident and they run back to the town and they tell people what happens in the town. The, the ESV says especially this. I don't know that especially is the right way to put it. It just means that, that they made a note to not just tell them that, hey, we lost a bunch of money because this Jewish guy ran our pigs into the sea, but they explain to him what actually happened. They say, listen, our pigs ran into the sea because this man healed those two blokes up there in the caves up there in the tombs, the ones that we, we couldn't deal with. They were too fierce for us to, to throw out or to do anything with. He just, he just he spoke a word to them, and now they're fine. And they come out, and they say, please leave. It's a really strange thing. We expect Matthew to give us more than that, to tell us that they had little faith for Jesus to interact with them in some form or fashion, but he asks, and Immediately in chapter 9, we read that he just gets into his boat and leaves. Does exactly what they ask. Why go to all the trouble? Why, why go to all the trouble of crossing the sea? Why go to all the trouble of, of meeting these demon-possessed men simply to cast those demons out and then cross back over? It's not just for the demon-possessed men. It's for the disciples. Jesus is powerful over all things. He's not just powerful in the land of Israel. He's powerful outside of it. He is not just powerful to the people of Israel. He is powerful outside of them. His power isn't limited by your faith. His power isn't limited by their faith. They didn't ask for his healing, but he gave it. His power isn't limited by our interactions with him. He is powerful regardless of how we interact. He can heal anyone. We remember we all the way back in chapter 4, we read the passage that this land of Naphtali was a dark land, and in this land of darkness, a great light has shone. And we think that they're talking about the Jews, and what Jesus is showing these people is the darkness that is here is not just the darkness of the Jews that were here. It is even the darkness of the Gentiles that I have power over, and I can show my light amongst any of them that I so choose. He is greater than the powers that we cannot control, the floods, the droughts, the tornadoes, and the storms. None of these hold power or sway over him, and he is powerful over the whole of the earth. The demons have no power over him, no matter where they might go. Not in foreign places, not in foreign people, even amongst those who want nothing to do with Jesus, even amongst those, demons have no power over them unless Jesus gives it to them. He speaks but a word and delivers those who have no faith in him from their bonds. He is a warrior like David before him, doing good for all, delivering from darkness even those who would run back to it. Again, friends, if Jesus is so good to those who want nothing to do with him, to those who would see such a wondrous act and ask him to leave, to those who have no concern for him or the, the history and the traditions of his people that he's come to represent, if they don't care about him and he is that good to them, what do you think he's able to do for you? What good do you think that he would withhold from you? What, what is there that Jesus cannot deliver you from? Jesus is a warrior, but he is a kind one. He's not a mercenary holding out for money He's not a despotic general holding out for power, but he's a kind and happy warrior, compassionate and good, seeking to deliver you from everything that holds you in captivity. You are to trust this kind of man.
He might lead you into dark places, but he himself is the light. He might lead you into difficult spots, but he is powerful over them all. Trust in him. Trust in him who does good to all, who loves all, who shows kindness to all, and destroys all the enemies who stands to harm you. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Jesus must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Jesus will even one day come for that from you. Many look at these sort of miracles and they say, they're not important. Just hang on to his teaching, hang on to, to the ethics of how we ought to live and this importance of loving one another and forgiving one another. That's what we need to have. But all of us in here who know Jesus Christ know better. The miracles that we see in Scripture are important because we need a Savior, not a teacher. We need a teacher. But we need more than just someone to educate us. The problems of the world aren't fixed just by spending more time in books and spending more time in science and spending more time understanding how the world works and how human beings work. It's not just education. We don't need someone who can simply make us more knowledgeable in the ways of religion and godliness because our hearts simply don't long for God. Our, our desires are not for him, and when they are, they are perverted in such a way that we would make God into our own image. We need a Savior who can ransom us from ourselves, who can raise the dead to life, who can change our very nature and our hearts set on evil to hearts that are set upon good. We need a teacher. Absolutely we do. But we need more than a teacher. We need a man who can work miracles. One who can make us new, give us new life, fix us firmly and finally. And Jesus is just that kind of a savior. He is always faithful and true. He is always mighty. He is always compassionate and he is kind. He is God incarnate, yet sharing with us in bone and blood. So he is sympathetic to our struggles and yet he stands over them. A greater savior cannot be conceived. To whom would you run even this day for help and aid and salvation from? Who is better than Jesus to get these things from? Trust him when you are in the midst of oppression. Trust him when you are in the midst of a storm. Trust him when the ways seem hard. Trust in him, for Jesus will never let you down. Let us pray. Jesus, give us faith that you will be present in every trouble, powerful over every foe, that we might rest secure in you. Let us not be tossed by the ways of the world, by our circumstances, or even our own abilities. You are great and mighty and loving, good to us in all situations. Let us rest in that alone. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us our hymn response, song of response, which is a hymn, It Is Well With My Soul.